in this age of slapstick worship and evangelical obsession with being culturally relevant, I fear that we need to come as far away from all of that stuff as we possibly can to worship the Lord. And my calling as your pastor is to do what was summed up very well by a great old preacher of 300 years ago in New England, a man by the name of Cotton Mather. And he said that it is the preacher's calling to, quote, restore the throne and dominion of God in the souls of men. And so this morning we will endeavor to do just that as we take our Bibles once again and turn to the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9, as we look at the second part of the sermon that I began last week, Unto Us a Child is Born. We continue to look at just a few of the amazing prophecies this morning concerning the incarnation of Jesus Christ found in Isaiah 9. You will recall it was written 700 years before it actually occurred. Last week we immersed ourselves in the concepts of the glory of His promised light. Secondly, we looked at the glory of His perfect gift. And we saw last week in Isaiah chapter 6, just by way of review, in verse 1, we, I'm sorry, in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. And we want to look specifically at verse 1 for a moment. It says, but there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish, referring to the covenant people, the people of Israel. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And of course, Zebulun, as you will recall, and Naphtali were tribes of Israelites in the northern part of the kingdom. They were the first to fall under the weight of the Assyrian invaders when God judged Israel. And although, as we read here, there was gloom and anguish, there was also a brighter day of glory that was promised, a reference to the region where the Messiah, the light of the world, the Lord Jesus, would someday come, someday be born. And in verse 2, he says, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And dear friends, even as that promise held true to those people some 700 years before that light appeared, it also holds true to those people in Israel who await the light that many of them don't even understand when he comes again the second time. Because indeed, the people of Israel this day are living in intense pressure. There is intense international pressure for them to continue to capitulate to the demands of people who want nothing less than to see them all dead. But even now, as the world turns its back on Israel in these dark days, and frankly, there will be even darker days for them, but we know that God is faithful to His covenant and He will someday return to His people and glorify Himself. So we have seen the glory of His promised light, the glory of His perfect gift. 
And we also began to look last week at the glory of his preeminent titles. There's four pairs of titles. In verse 6, towards the end, we read, And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. Notice in verse 6, a child is going to be born, a son will be given, the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. And as we discussed the last time, indeed, he is wonderful, he is astonishing, the Lord Jesus Christ was and is amazing, magnificent. You can just continue to stack up the adjectives. And what a wonderful counselor indeed he is. What greater counselor can there be? For he alone is the source of all wisdom, the divine logos. And certainly his supernatural wisdom will someday drown out the foolishness of man. But now this morning we want to examine the rest of these glorious titles Not only is he a wonderful counselor, but notice he is also a mighty God. El Gabor, he is a mighty God. This child that would be born, the son that would be given to us upon whose whose shoulders the governments will someday rest is a mighty God. Keep in mind, as the child, we see his humanity. But as the Son and as the mighty God, we see His deity. And this is the one to whom penitent Israel must someday turn. And this is the one to whom we in the church age have turned. Not a mere human that lived and died, but the second person of the triune Godhead, the Lord Jesus Christ, the mighty God. And indeed, He is omnipotent. He is all-powerful. He is able to do whatever He desires to do. This babe that was in a manger. The concept in the original language means that He can do anything He wants to do. He can accomplish all, therefore, that He has promised. In fact, the psalmist calls us to worship in Psalm 24, verse 8, saying, Who is the King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Dear friends, that's the one that we worship this morning. Now, we're reminded of this concept of the mighty God in the Christmas story when we look back into Luke 1, for example. You don't have to turn there. Let me remind you of the passage. Again, now, remember, 700 years before this happens, Isaiah promises a light that will come this child that would be born, this son that would be given. And in Luke 1, we read that the angel Gabriel comes to Mary and says to her, beginning in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now you can imagine what a young teenage virgin would say to the the angel as she heard such an amazing promise. As would be expected, Mary was utterly fascinated with this miraculous promise. And the text goes on to say, then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? Meaning, she does not know a man in a conjugal sense. 
And the angel answered and said to her, now listen to this, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, also, that Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. The angel went on to say, now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month for her who was called barren. For with God, nothing is impossible. So even in that wonderful text that we're all familiar with, the angel Gabriel attests to the one he serves, to the power of the Most High God. And friends, in light of God's omnipotence, it's fascinating to think of all of the ways his infinite power can be displayed. And it sends shivers up my, shivers up my spine when I think about this. Let me give you one example in light of the Christmas story. Again, remember this promise now that is given to Israel through Isaiah and their dark days of sin and captivity. In verse 2 of Isaiah 9, he tells us that the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Again, a reference to Jesus. And you will remember even last week we discussed the Shekinah, that glorious cloud of light that pictured the presence of God all throughout the Old Testament and even some in the New Testament. And I believe that there's a high probability that this glorious, brilliant, resplendent light even appeared to Mary when the Holy Spirit came upon her. It's interesting in Luke 1.35 Gabriel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the holy offspring shall be called the Son of God. That is to say, through the divine power of the Holy Spirit, he will perform this creative act of conception within the virgin's womb. For nothing is impossible with God. But the activity of this miraculous creative event is described as one of coming upon and overshadowing. Now, not only is this reminiscent of the spirit of God's work in creation. Remember when he when he hovered over the waters in Genesis one and verse two. But also, this is an amazing parallel of the cloud of the divine presence, the Shekinah that came upon and overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant between the cherubs. And we read about that all throughout the Old Testament, especially in, in Exodus 25, verse 22. Now, again, remember, folks, the Lord is depicted in the Old Testament as a consuming fire. He spoke to Moses from the burning bush in glorious light. He revealed his law on Mount Horeb, speaking from amidst the fire, the light of his presence once again. And later, when the tabernacle was completed, in Numbers 9, verse 15, here's what we read. On the day that the tabernacle was erected, the cloud covered the tabernacle and the tent of the testimony. And in the evening, it was like the appearance of fire over the tabernacle until morning. So it was continuously, the cloud would cover it by day and the appearance of fire by night. And of course, as we read the rest of the story, it leads them throughout the wilderness. Now, again, all through the Old Testament, the presence of God would come upon his people 
and would overshadow them whenever he, he was about to reveal himself to them or whenever he was ready to protect them. By the way, this was a phenomenon that was unique only to Israel. We read about that in Romans 9 and verse 4 and other passages. And eventually, the Holy Spirit of God comes upon now and overshadows the Virgin Mary. And for that reason, the Holy, the Holy Offspring shall be called the Son of God, Luke's Gospel tells us. And indeed, the promised light of Isaiah appeared. And I believe that perhaps... It even appeared to Mary and maybe to her first. Illustrating the poetic praise of the psalmist in Psalm 104, verse 30. Thy spirit, O God, makes life to abound. And we know that his resplendent light, the light of his Shekinah, would later appear then to the shepherds in Bethlehem, announcing the arrival of the Messiah. And as we learned last week, it appeared to the Persian kingmakers that led them to Jerusalem. And then it disappeared and then later reappeared. And even later, Jesus takes Peter and James and John to the mount. And Matthew 17 says, and he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun and this gar and his garments became as white as light. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them. And then later on we read that the dazzling, dazzling light of His divine presence overshadowed the precious Savior. And in verse 5 of chapter 17 of Matthew's Gospel we read, A bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to Him. Beloved, we can rejoice that indeed we serve a mighty God. The God who is the source of all light, who as promised came as a light unto the world. Nothing is impossible with him. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew 19, 26, with God, all things are possible. And indeed, even the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit of God can produce conception in an old woman who is barren as well as a young virgin. Indeed, he is able, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 3.20, to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Folks, this is a call for great rejoicing, is it not? Our God is a sovereign God who exercises unlimited power over his creation. And I believe this is what inspired the, the hymnist to sing, Come Thou Almighty King, help us Thy name to sing. Help us to praise Father All-Glorious or All-Victorious. Come and reign over us, Ancient of Days. So, not only was the coming child to become the wonderful Counselor and the Mighty God, but I want you to notice the third in the quartet of predicted preeminent titles. He was also to be the Eternal Father. It could be translated literally, the father of eternity. Now, this is an amazing concept. This child who would be born, the son who would be given, that he would also be called the father of eternity. And I did an enormous amount of reading and thinking and meditating, and it's hard to know all that God wants us to understand here. 
But certainly I would agree with many of the Hebrew scholars that would affirm, as one said, and I quote, he will be the tender, faithful and wise trainer, guardian and provider for his people even in eternity. And of course, this was an astounding and reassuring and comforting thought to the people of of that day. But dear friends, he is the one who is not only eternally a father to all of his children, but I believe this is also a testimony to his immutability. In other words, the unchangeableness of his person. The reason I would say that, if we look in Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 10 through verse 12, in that passage we read of how God is God the Father is attesting to the superiority of the Son over the angels who who will one day even destroy His creation in judgment. And in Hebrews 1.10 he says, Thou, Lord, in the beginning didst lay the foundation of the earth. Now again, this is the Father referring to His Son. In the beginning you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of Thy hands. They will perish. But thou remainest, and they all will become as old, old as a garment, and as a mantle thou wilt roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years will not come to an end. A fascinating thought. Now think with me. I mean, we know that the Lord Jesus Christ is also our Creator God. John 1, 3 says that all things came into being by Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Very clear. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 15, says that He, referring to Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, in other words, the preeminent one, the superior one, of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones of dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created by Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him in Him, all things hold together. But we know that about Him as our Creator God, but dear friends, do you realize that He is also the Father of eternity, that He is the one that created time? It's an amazing thought. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the first and He is the last. And this is what we see once again even in Hebrews 1, verses 10 through 12. John MacArthur has said it well and I quote, By the Father's own testimony, the Son, Jesus, was the person of the Godhead who created time out of eternity and fashioned the universe from nothing. Oh, dear friends, the mysteries of God, inconceivable, The Son, the Lord Jesus Christ that came as a babe in the manger, also is the Father of eternity, the Creator of time. And of course, He would have to be this in order to be the sovereign ruler over all of His creation. In fact, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 46, verse 10, that He declares the end from the beginning. Can you imagine that? To declare the end... From the very beginning goes on to say, and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Friends, that is a mighty God. And that is, in fact, 
the Father of eternity. So he is a wonderful counselor, a mighty God, the Father of eternity. And finally, the fourth preeminent title that is given to the future child who would be king is that of Prince of Peace. In other words, this one who was predicted, this, this one who would someday come, would be the very embodiment of peace. But you need to understand something. This is very important. The peace that he would eventually bring, the peace that would eventually secure among the nations of the world all that he has promised when he reigns on the throne of David during the millennial kingdom has to begin with a peace that begins between sinful man and a holy God. He has to, first of all, secure a peace between man who has rebelled against God and the holy God. So, think of this. Again, recall back in Luke 2, the angel appears to the shepherds. The glory of the Lord shines around them. Again, you see the light of His Shekinah. They announce the birth of the Savior. Then in verse 13, it says, Suddenly there appeared with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, and here's what it says in the King James Version, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Now, you want to be careful. This is perhaps a bit of an unfortunate translation because it's very subject to misinterpretation. Many assume that Jesus came to bring peace on earth, that somehow his death was the ultimate symbol of, of nonviolent resistance and that, that he is the, the great example of how to be peaceful and how to illustrate uh, sacrificial love and how we should all love one another and, and serve fellow man and all of that. And certainly there, there's some merit to that. And many, therefore, will misinterpret this text. And you'll see it in, in Christmas cards that maybe next to contemporary Christian music are notorious for dumbing down the truths of Scripture, turning theology into something that is worse than bad. You'll also see this concept even in the in the yard decorations, many times you'll drive by and you'll see peace on earth. That somehow that's what this season is all about. Meaning we need to have the absence of conflict. We, we need to do away with war. You know, let's bring all the troops home and let's all just warm fuzzy each other to death here. And, and just, just hopefully we can just all get along. And that's what Christmas is all about. Well, worse than that, type of naive Theology, if I can even call it that, people will add to that this goodwill toward me, men saying that, well, that, that, that means that, that somehow here at Christmas, because of Jesus, this person that lived many years ago, we need to be like him and be benevolent in our relationships. We, we need to all just learn how to get along. And again, you see this in, in Christmas cards, people naively thinking that we just need to show kindness to each other. It's kind of a sentimental version of do unto others as you would have them do unto you. I mean, it's all that type of, of, of shallow, sentimental idiocy that we see at Christmas time. But friends, none of that is true. Especially when you understand the Prince of Peace and what that really means. Not to mention what we really see here in Luke 2. Because 
In the New American Standard Version, it clarifies it a little bit. In verse 14, it says that here's what they sang. Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among men with whom he is pleased. Ooh, now that adds a little different twist to it. Now, by the way, this does not mean that he offers some kind of sentimental social peace to people that he kind of likes. Nor does it mean that he gives uh, some kind of reward for meritorious service here. But literally, it can be translated peace among men of his good pleasure. Or peace toward men on whom God's sovereign pleasure rests. Now folks, please understand. This is the glorious goodwill that God grants to sinful man. To all who will believe in his son. Here's the idea. Remember now, man, biblically we understand, is at war with God. There is a war going on. Jesus said in John 3.18, He who does not believe has been judged already. And in verse 36, he says that the wrath of God abides on him. Romans 5.10 says that, that people that are unsaved are, are, are enemies of God. Colossians 1.21 tells us that those of us before we came to Christ were once alienated and enemies of God. Now stay with me here. The Greek term for goodwill is found in three other passages in Luke's gospel. And in each case, it denotes God's uninfluenced, sovereign good pleasure. Whereby he sets his love on those whom he chooses. Where he reveals truth to whomever he desires. Friends, this is the staggering truth behind Christ's birth. Now here's what the angels were therefore saying. Glory to God in the highest. To those who are the sovereignly chosen recipients of his grace. To those elected solely on the basis of his good pleasure. Those who can now have peace with God through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior, the Prince of Peace. Folks, this is the most fundamental truth of Christmas. You see, because of sin, we were once enemies with God. But God in His mercy provided a means for us to be reconciled to Him through faith in His only begotten Son. So therefore, because of the Prince of Peace, we can have peace with God. So the angels sing glory to God in the highest because He has provided for us a way of peace. You know, I'm always humbled when I contemplate the reality of my salvation. And the truth is, That for me, as well as every other believer, all of us have received the gift of salvation solely on the basis of His good pleasure. It's an amazing thought to me. I cannot share in the glory of my salvation. All the glory belongs to Him. That's why the angels sang glory to God in the highest. You see, friends, this was the theology that, that evoked such angelic adoration. 
Charles Spurgeon has said it so well, and I quote, the only glad tidings that made the angels sing are those that put God first, God last, God midst and God without end in the salvation of his creatures and put the crown holy and alone upon the head of him that saves without a helper. Glory to God in the highest is the angel's song. And I think of these angelic beings singing God's glory. Even before all of the shepherds. And I think that these were the same ones that the Bible says were the morning stars that that sang together when all of the, the sons of God shouted for joy. These are the same creatures. And the hymnist has captured it perfectly, writing angels from the realms of glory. Wing your downward flight to earth. Ye who sing creation's story now proclaim Messiah's birth. Come and worship, worship Christ, the newborn king. And friends, this too should be our song. This should be constantly resonating within our hearts and and pouring forth as a doxology of praise from our lips. Child of God, please hear this. How can we, as undeserved recipients of such love, Do anything less than the angels who will never experience such grace. I'm sure that such a thought inspired Charles Wesley when he wrote that great hymn. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. By the way, he wasn't wanting a huge choir here. He was wanting more than one tongue so that he himself could sing. Sing what? My great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace. My gracious Master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honors of Thy name. And by the way, that's precisely what the shepherds did, right? After they heard the angels. Well, what a profound hope this must have been to the remnant of Judah some 700 years before the child would be born to them and to all of us who know and love Christ when the Son would be given. And again, may I remind you, the us in Isaiah 9-6, that wasn't to everyone in Israel. That's not to everyone in the whole wide world. No, the context reveals that Isaiah is speaking only to those who believe in the saving purposes of God through faith in the child that would be born and the son that would be given. And so this was great hope. The prince who is to come will satisfy the absolute justice of God. He will procure a state of peace between God and man, pardoning sinners and declaring them righteous before a holy God. And it's with this in mind that the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 5, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, in other words, having been declared righteous, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exalt in hope of the glory of God. But dear friends, this is not true for those who reject the Savior. For them, the battle rages on and it will continue until finally God has had enough and there will be nothing left but eternal judgment and condemnation. 
Because those people have no hope. They have no peace. They are not part of that secret, mysterious kingdom of God where He dwells in the hearts of those who have placed their faith in Christ. Nor will they ever see the earthly kingdom or the eternal kingdom to come. Oh, child of God, what a glorious salvation is ours. What an inconceivable kingdom we now live in. And a kingdom that we even await. The interim kingdom of the millennial kingdom. That thousand year reign prior to the eternal kingdom. But I want you to notice back to Isaiah's prophecy in verse 7. We read, there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now, again, this is pointing to that future Davidic kingdom. This is the destiny of the child that would be born. This was the future throne of the son that would be given. The millennial kingdom, which is constantly revealed all throughout Scripture. And may may I remind you that the kingdom that will come will be inaugurated at his second coming when he comes in power and great glory, when the light once again appears, when he establishes a kingdom of peace on the earth and he reigns with a rod of righteousness And he wields a scepter of iron. This will be the time we know when first Jerusalem will be judged according to Micah 3 verses 8 through 12. And then immediately following that judgment, we read of the establishment of of the mountain of the Lord in Jerusalem during the millennium. That interim kingdom, as I say, that precedes the eternal kingdom. That will be the time when the New Testament saints, that's us, will... Rule with Christ and with the angels. That will be the time when we judge the twelve tribes of Israel. It will be that time when Satan is bound, when the sheep and the goat nations will be judged, as we will see when we get into Matthew, especially Matthew 25. When the tribulation martyrs will be resurrected. It will be that time when the entire topography of Jerusalem will be miraculously altered and the millennial temple will be built We read about that in Ezekiel chapter 40, all the way through chapter 48. The new Jerusalem, the city of God, will descend from heaven like a giant space module. And it will hover over the earth. We read about that in Revelation 21. And like like a magnificent chandelier suspended over the earth, the glorified saints, that will be us, will... Go back and forth as we serve the King. Back and forth from earth. Amos prophesies of that time in chapter 9 verse 11. In that day, he says, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places. Restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. By the way, may I interject It is the consequence of tortured exegesis to somehow get all of these texts to apply to the church. Dear friends, there are two separate programs. I keep reminding you of this. 
because it has become almost a fad today in evangelical circles to assume that Israel and all of the covenantal blessings have now been abdicated and have been given to the church. Israel was so sinful, but we're not that way. So we're going to get all the blessings and that all of these promises are nothing more than allegory. I don't know what else to say, but a kind baloney. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent and I will repair its broken places, restore its ruins and build it as it used to be. Zechariah 9 verse 10 says in that day, he will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth, referring to the river Euphrates area. Dear friends, that will be a time of untold blessings for both Jews and and Gentiles, blessings that are beyond description, all because a child was born and a son was given. But may I draw your attention once again to this promised light. I cannot escape it. It captures my heart. This promised light that Isaiah predicted some 27 years ago from today. Part of the light, of course, was fulfilled at the first advent. But keep in mind that much more is coming. What we saw in his first coming was a preview of coming attractions, if you will. We must never forget this glorious theme of the Shekinah. Later, the Spirit of God would reveal something else to his remnant, to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 60, in verse 1, We have a description of of, of the glory of Zion when when the Lord appears again in power and great glory. And here's what we read. And by the way, this is when, once again, the Shekinah, that resplendent, dazzling, brilliant light of the presence of God appears once again. In Isaiah 60 and verse 1, we read this. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. And nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. And when we study Matthew 24 and some of the other parallel texts, we will see that indeed all of the, all of the lights of the universe are going to be turned off right before God appears the second time. Before the Lord comes in power and great glory. And then he's going to turn all of the lights on. Now, while only believers enter the millennial kingdom, there will be many generations of their offspring who will need to come to a saving faith in Christ. Many will, many won't, we read. But the glorious light of the King of glory, this child who was born, the son who was given, will draw the nations to him in worship, as we see here in Isaiah 6 and other passages. Ah, but the glory of the Shekinah doesn't stop there for the future. Because in Revelation 21, we have a very detailed description of the new Jerusalem. And in verse 23, we read, And the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it. Why? For the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. You see, friends, once again, here is a description of this light that was promised. A light that is so bright, 
It illumines the entire universe. And that text goes on to say in Revelation 21, and the nations shall walk by its light and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. And again, as you read Revelation 21, you'll you'll discover that the walls of the new Jerusalem and the floors and the ceilings are all translucent. So the glorious light of the Shekinah can shine throughout the whole city, a 1,500-mile cube. And even those upon the earth will be enlightened by that light. You say, well, my, that's fantastic, but I wonder, is there any place else in the future where we're going to see the light? Oh, yes. In fact, let's take our Bibles and turn to Ezekiel 43. Ezekiel 43. I normally don't do this, but this is so precious. And at this Christmas time, when we see just thousands, even millions of light, I think, I, I think over at Opryland they were talking about a million plus lights. As we see this, I really want to drive this home to you. Because there's another place where we're going to see the light of His glory, that, that, that promised light. In Ezekiel chapter 43, beginning in verse 1. There's, here we have, by the way, a description of, of the return of the Shekinah to the millennial temple, the Lord's dwelling place on earth. Beginning in verse 1, we read, Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the way of the east, and his voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. Now, folks, let me pause for a moment. You remember earlier, some 400 years before Christ came, the glory of the Shekinah departed from the temple. And Ezekiel describes the departure. And it went out of the temple over the east gate up to the Mount of Olives and on from there into heaven. And then it finally came back again in the person of the Lord Jesus. And now that light is shining through his church. And yet someday he is going to come again as we have discovered even this morning, and shine upon the world even in His millennial temple. And He is going to come back the same way that He departed. I should say in the opposite direction, don't you understand? In the same stages. But He goes on in verse 3 and says, And it was like, referring to the light, the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision which I saw when He came to destroy the city. And by the way, you can read about that in Ezekiel 1 where he tries to describe God and all of the light that surrounded him. And the visions, verse 3, were like the vision which I saw by the river Jabbar and I fell on my face. Verse 4, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. Folks, again, this is reminiscent of the days of the tabernacle. When the glory of the Lord overshadowed and hovered between the cherubim and the holy of holies. And the people could camp around the, 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 the tent of meeting and see the glorious presence of God. And also the glory that later came into the temple. Verse 6, then I heard one speaking to me from the house while a man was standing beside me. And he said to me, son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place of the soles of my feet 
where I will dwell among the sons of Israel forever. And the house of Israel will not again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their harlotry and by the corpses of their kings when they die, by setting their threshold by my threshold and their doorpost beside my doorpost with only the wall between me and them. And they have defiled my holy name by their abominations which they have committed, so I have consumed them in my anger. Now let them put away their harlotry and the corpses of their kings far from me, and I will dwell among them forever. What a picture of what will happen just prior to the second coming of Christ leading up to the millennial kingdom. Ah, but can I give you yet another passage? Go back to Isaiah. This time go back to Isaiah 4. By the way, as you turn there, beloved, I hope you somehow are inspired to think that this will be our experience someday when we see the glorious presence of God in these incredible events. In Isaiah chapter 4, especially beginning in verse 2, we have a description of the blazing light of His glory when He returns to Zion. Notice this, beginning in verse 2 of Isaiah 4. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Keep in mind now, there's going to be a renovation of the earth during the millennial kingdom. At the end of that, then the earth will be recreated for the eternal state. But then in verse 3, And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the bloodshed of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and the spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole area of Mount Zion and over her assemblies, what? A cloud by day, even smoke and the brightness of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory will be a canopy. Oh, child of God, what more can I do to somehow stir your hearts to worship? As we reflect upon the child who was born, the son who was given, the one upon whose shoulders the government will rest, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal father, the prince of peace, The one who will reclaim the throne of David forever. The one whose light has shone brightly for all eyes to see. And the one who came to earth as the light of the world. Now I want to close with a true story this morning. In Jesus' day, the Jews were very familiar with the Shekinah. In fact, according to the Mosaic Law, they had to celebrate every year the Feast of Tabernacles, which was a seven-day festival that began on the 15th day of the seventh month, which would have been around the October-September, or I should say September-October time for us. And it was also called the Feast of Booths, or the Ingathering. By the way, as a footnote, this is the only Old Testament festival that will be celebrated during the millennial reign of Christ. 
a graphic reminder of God's deliverance and preservation of his people. And the purpose of this festival was to commemorate God's deliverance, God's protection, as well as his provision during that time in the wilderness where he led them. And especially when his light, as you will recall, recall, protected them from the Egyptian charioteers that were pursuing them. Now, among other things, during this particular festival, the Jewish people of Jesus' day would build huts. By the way, many of them still do this, some of the Orthodox Jews. They would build booths, as they would call them, from limbs that would remind them of the the wilderness journey and also, therefore, celebrate God's provision and protection of them and and even to celebrate God's provision in in the autumn harvest. And in Jesus' day, they did something very interesting in the temple. They had four great menorahs that were lit at night during the feast. And the wicks of these giant menorahs, these giant lights, were made from the worn out garments of the priests. And these giant lights would illumine the entire temple area. And under these great torches, under the, these, these great menorahs, the celebrants would, would, would dance what was called a torch dance to the accompaniment of the master musicians of the Levitical orchestra. And the Levites would chant from the Psalms of Ascent, which were Psalms 120 through 134. And each one would be chanted on the 15 steps that led up from the court of the Israelites to the court of women. So this was part of that great festival. A great time of rejoicing, a great time of celebration, as they reflected upon God's faithfulness in delivering them in the past, as well as thinking towards His promised deliverance in the future. And of course, they understood the promises of Zechariah 14, when the Messiah would someday come as a consuming fire and judge the nations and his feet would come upon the Mount of Olives and and he would personally intervene against the nations and all those that gather against them, uh, gather against the covenant people to be destroyed. And, And they contemplated this savior, this warrior king that would someday come, the same one that led them through the wilderness. And they understood all of the prophecies, at least they, did, um, they understood the prophecies. They didn't quite understand the timing, obviously. But they understood that the Jews in that day would flee from the wicked oppressors through the valley of escape that would be made, made because they knew that when the Messiah would come, he would descend upon the Mount of Olives. It will, it will split asunder and create the great valley of Jehoshaphat, the valley of decision, as Joel describes And they knew that when that day would come, someday, that the heavenly luminaries would be extinguished. In fact, they remembered Zechariah 14, 6, that said this, It shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. And again, that's the end of the tribulation. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but... At evening time it shall happen 
that it will be light. In other words, he's going to turn on the lights again. And in verse 9 of Zechariah 14, he goes on to say, And the Lord shall be king over all the earth. In that day it shall be the Lord is one and his name is one. There will be no more false religions, no more phony gods and idolatry and so on. Now, keep in mind, during the Feast of Tabernacles, this was the mindset of the people. Now, at the end of the feast, the menorahs were suddenly extinguished. And it was pitch black. On the temple, all around the temple, symbolizing the darkness that remains until Messiah comes. And dear friends, it is believed that at that moment, in the midst of sudden darkness, and in the quietness of that, shall we say, electric moment, that the Lord Jesus Christ yelled out the words in John 8:12 I am the light of the world he who follows me shall not walk in the darkness but shall have the light of life A dear friends I remind you of that because as Isaiah predicted a child was born a son was given he was the light that was promised he was the light that came and he is the light that will come again. Oh, dear friends, I hope your hearts are illumined to the truth of the light of Christ. He said in John 12 and verse 46, I have come as a light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. You see, the Messiah was and is the light unto his people. But like the children of Israel, we must follow the light. We must trust the light. We must walk in the light, lest we perish in the darkness. And as believers, I challenge you this morning with the words of Jesus in Matthew 5, beginning in verse 14. Here's what he said. You, believers, are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And dear friend, as the, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, in verse 15, we are to be blameless and harmless Children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, catch this, among whom you shine as lights in the world. That is my challenge to you as we ponder these great truths during this Christmas season. Friends, may we all rejoice in the glory of His promised light in the glory of His perfect gift, and in the glory of His preeminent titles. And as we celebrate His birth this season, and as we gaze upon the millions of lights that are all around us, may we embrace the light of the world by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ and trusting Him and walking in His light and reflecting His glory in a dark and hopeless world. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for the truth of Your Word. Cause it to bear much fruit in our hearts. We praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.
We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.